You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 101. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention. I know it is valuable, and I hope to honor it today with this episode where we dive back into the dichotomy of leadership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. We are going to be turning to page 148 in the book, Aggressive, Not Reckless. And before we get there, though, number one, thank you to everybody who gave me feedback on the last episode, Train Hard But Train Smart. I truly appreciate that, and I'm glad that so many of you enjoyed it and got something out of it that was again, encouraging and, and uh, greatly welcomed and appreciated. So thank you for that. If you would like to buy me a cup of coffee, go to Anchor FM Warrior Priest Podcast, click the support button, and you can buy me a cup of coffee. Everything that you put into this podcast financially goes back into the podcast, both the resources, the hardware, the software, everything that happens behind the scenes. And also, if you would like to support my podcast and my gym, I have hoodies and stickers available you can DM me on Instagram and I'm back on Facebook uh, for better or worse. And so you can find me there, um, Donovan Riley on Facebook, otherwise Warrior Priest Gym and Podcast and Warrior Priest on Instagram, which is my primary social media platform. Otherwise, you can email me via the website. But that being said, then get the hoodie, get the sticker, buy me a cup of coffee, subscribe, share the podcast with others. Let's drive that subscription rate up. Let's drive the downloads up and get more people involved with the show. Thank you also, by the way, one last thing. Thank you to everybody who answered my request about how to improve the show and make it better and how to get the word out about the podcast to more people, get more ears on the audio. Thank you for sharing that information with me. Thank you for tagging me in your posts on your social media feeds. And now another thing that I just remembered I've had way too much caffeine today, by the way, so buckle up for this one. Um, Also, I was talking with a friend of mine because I do another podcast uh, with my co-host, Christopher Gillespie, Coffee by Gillespie, great stuff, roasted to order, go check him out. But we were talking about different ways that our other podcast, the Band Books podcast, how we market and how we get folks involved with the show and engaging with the podcast and engaging with us. And one of the things that we discussed that I wanted to share with you then too is what I would like to see from you, my listeners, is more interaction, more engagement on social media and with the podcast. So to that end, what I would like from you is to meme me. I've got over probably 200 episodes at this point between the high ground, the long form episodes that I started off doing, the midweek debriefs, the sermons. You know my patterns. You know the things that I repeat over and over again. You know my quirks and idiosyncrasies. Meme me. Meme the podcast. It can be funny. It can be motivational. It can be serious. It can be anything you want, but create a meme about the podcast. Tag the podcast. Tag me in the meme. If you want to do bump music for the podcast, I will put that on at the end of the podcast. Or if it's really good, I'll just swap out my bump music and use your bump music for the podcast. If you want to come up with different ways of, of like marketing and, and advertising the podcast, again, whether it be a meme or some viral video or bump music, get creative is what I'm saying. Get creative and help me like broaden the brand, broaden this podcast, get more people involved in this conversation. 
that we're having on the podcast. So now, all of that being said, in my caffeine-induced mania, let's dive into the book, The Dichotomy of Leadership by Willink and Babin, Aggressive Not Reckless, beginning on page 148. Problems are not going to solve themselves. A leader must get aggressive and take action to solve them and implement a solution. Being too passive and waiting for a solution to appear often enables a problem to escalate and get out of control. The enemy is not going to back off. The leader must get aggressive and put the enemy in check. The good deal is not going to deliver itself to a company. The leader has to go out and make a good deal happen, which is why, ironically, I just asked for your help in advertising and promoting and improving the podcast. Changes and new methodologies in a team, well, they're not going to implement themselves. Leaders need to aggressively implement them. Problems are not going to solve themselves. How many times have we attempted to avoid a problem that we knew was unavoidable because we were afraid of the pain and the anxiety and the stress that it was going to cause us. I was just having a conversation this morning with a group of people about this. Anxiety is really the anticipation of something that's coming in the future that's unknown. And by attempting to avoid the pain that comes with that anxiety, we actually increase the pain because we sit there circling, cycling in our minds, letting our imagination run wild with all of the what-ifs, the what-could-bes, the might-happens. We create monsters out of men. We take a simple scenario that in and of itself is relatively benign. It's a small challenge, let's say. Let's say it's just going for walks in the morning because you want to enjoy the day. You want to build up to a light jog because along the way you want to get into hiking or mountaineering, or you just want to improve your overall health. And yet the anticipation of getting up and doing something new for the first time, even if it's relatively benign, like going for a walk around the park with a friend, how often do we, in anticipation of that, lay awake at night, make sure that all of our clothes for next morning are laid out, our shoes are unlaced and ready to put on our feet, we pre-make the coffee. We get everything ready because we, we just want everything to go perfectly versus I'm just going to get up and put my shoes on. If I don't have time for a cup of coffee, I'll just wait till after I get home to make coffee. And I'm out the door at five or six or seven in the morning on my walk. Why can't we just get up and do it? Why does it have to be a production? Why does there have to be a checklist? Why can't we just recognize this is what I want? This is what I need to do. And rather than labor over it and become anxious and stressed out over trying to anticipate, is it going to rain? Is it going to snow? Is it going to be dark? Is it going to be light? What kind of shoe do I need? Do I need a runner shoe or do I need a hiking shoe? Do I need a wide toe box or do I need a narrow heel? And on and on and on and on it goes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Rather than do any of that, why not just put on a pair of shoes and go for a walk? And if along the way you discover, I should have brought a protein bar. I should have brought a bottle of water. I should have dressed warmer. I need a different kind of uh, shoe or a different pair of socks, or I need to get some insoles for my shoes that have more cushion in them. And then you adapt as you go. I think we get so caught up in trying to make things perfect, or at least as good as they can be, 
that we actually cause ourselves more pain by attempting to avoid pain. And like I said, no matter how benign the pain may be or how acute the pain may be, our anxiety, more often than not, is generated by our anticipation of something happening, not the thing happening. As I've talked about before on the show, the buildup and the anxiety that I suffer from leading up to a fight is beyond measurement. It actually causes me pain in my soul preparing for a fight. I get so anxious and so stressed out by the anticipation of it. But as soon as the ref says, fight, that all melts away. It's gone. And I'm just in that moment fighting and I love it. It feels great. And as I've said before also, if I could just be like walking down the street or, or at the gym and someone comes in and says, we need somebody to fight in 15 minutes, that's the perfect setup for me for a fight. Don't give me any time to think about it. Don't give me time to get anxious or stressed out or anticipate what could or couldn't go wrong or what my game plan is going to be. Just put me in the fight. Just let me fight as is. That for me would be perfect. But that's not the way it works. And as a consequence, fighting for me is incredibly stressful, but not the fight itself. Everything around it's stressful, but not the fight itself. And I always scold myself and I joke about it and I'm very self-deprecating after the fact that I wasted so much time and energy stressing out about the fight when I knew exactly what the outcome of all that was going to be, that I was going to have the fight, get done with the fight, win or lose, feel good about the fight, walk away energized by the fight, and then laugh at myself for all the time and energy I wasted being anxious about the fight. We do this with jobs, especially with interviews, but also with our careers and constantly asking, is this the career for me? Am I in the right job? Do I need to find a different job? Do I need to get that promotion to be happy? What defines success for me versus just ask yourself this one question about your job. If you weren't paid to do it, would you still do it? And if the answer is yes, then you're probably in the right job because that's your passion. You love that job, obviously, because you do it even if you weren't paid. But if your answer is no, get a different job. Start looking now for a different job. Find what you're passionate about. Find that career that you're passionate about and then decide, am I willing to sacrifice what's necessary to have that career? I want to be self-employed. Okay, are you willing to do the work that's necessary? Are you willing to sacrifice to be successful as a self-employed entrepreneurial person? If the answer is no, don't do it because you're setting yourself up for failure. Because you've already said to yourself, I'm not willing to do what's necessary to su succeed according to my definition in this individual self-employment, independent contractor, entrepreneurial venture that I'm about to engage in. But why not just ask yourself one question? Why create a list of, well, this could happen if I leave the job, but if I stay, then there's this. And well, I want the promotion, but I'm not quite sure... Like, why do that to yourself? Why torture yourself? Why create all that excessive anxiety and stress when you could simply ask, would I do this job if I wasn't paid? If the answer is no, why are you doing it? Because as Jordan Peterson says, if you're miserable now, you're going to be more miserable in five years at the same job. But in five years, you're going to be 40 or 45 or 50. And then what? Why not today decide? Why not be aggressive? Now, again, don't be reckless. 
don't just quit your job and say, you know what, I'm not passionate about this job. And I was listening to Donovan Riley on the podcast when I was supposed to be collating files. I'm out of here. I quit. That's reckless. You, you still need a paycheck. You still have to pay bills. You don't want to leave on a bad footing with your former employer because you're going to want them to give you a recommendation for your next employer interview. You're going to want your resume to look high and tight and not have any spaces in it. Well, what's this blank space here? It says, according to your resume, you haven't worked anywhere in the last five years. I mean, I, I was working, but I, I left under, uh, you know, a shadow of, of, of resentment and there was a lot of bad blood there. And so I thought it best just not to put that down on my resume. You don't want that. You want to be morally good and trustworthy. You want to be the type of employee that when they walk or you walk into the interview and you sit down and you can be honest with them and you can demonstrate your integrity and your dignity. You can demonstrate that you are someone that they would benefit from having as a part of their team. So yeah, be aggressive in seeking out a career, seeking out employment, seeking out relationships that you're passionate about. But at the same time, don't burn bridges. Don't be reckless because then things escalate out of your control. So be aggressive, but don't be, don't be reckless. Don't let things escalate out of control. So then they continue, an aggressive mindset should be the default setting of any leader. Default, aggressive. This means that the best leaders, the best teams, don't wait to act. Instead, understanding the strategic vision or commander's intent, they aggressively execute to overcome obstacles, capitalize on immediate opportunities, accomplish the mission, and win. There you go. The best leaders, the best teams don't wait to act. Instead, you understand the vision, the strategic vision, and then you aggressively execute that vision by overcoming obstacles, capitalizing on opportunities in order to accomplish the mission and to win. I think of the truckers in Canada right now and all of those that support them. How did that happen? Well, a group of people got fed up. Common, ordinary citizens who I wouldn't actually consider common or ordinary. I think they're rather extraordinary people. And I think we're all extraordinary people if we allow ourselves to be extraordinary. But we have been indoctrinated and brainwashed since we entered into compulsory education, since we started watching TV. We've been indoctrinated to believe that we are common and ordinary and that others are heroic and others are noble and others are brave and others are revolutionaries and others are rebels but not us. That's not for us. We admire and adore celebrity because they're not like us. They're like demigods. We adore and worship professional athletes and cultural influencers because they're not like us. We envy them. We loathe them. We hate them because we're not them. We want their money. We want their power and influence. We want their beauty. We want what they've got. But because we can't have it, for whatever reason, we envy them and therefore we want to tear them down. But if we were in their position, we would relish our life. We would revel in all the opportunities that life provides for us. Which is to say, we have been indoctrinated and brainwashed to believe that we are not equal to celebrities and professional athletes and cultural influencers. We're different than they are. We are lesser than. They are high and we are low. 
They are the highnesses, we are the lownesses. And therefore, we watch movies and television shows about rebels and revolutionaries like um, the Mockingbird series or, or Hunger Games, I'm sorry, Mockingjay is what I was thinking of, the Hunger Games series, for example, or just the Star Wars trilogy, or name it. Name any series, Matrix, Lord of the Rings, on and on it goes. It's a trope, right? We watch those and we always root for the rebels. We always root for the revolutionaries. And yet when it comes time to be rebels and revolutionaries, why aren't we there with the truckers? Why aren't we there with the protesters? Why aren't we making politicians afraid of us? Why aren't we demanding representation? There was this little thing in the United States called the Revolutionary War. One of the foundational pillars of the Revolutionary War was the statement, no taxation without representation. Now, I pay about 37% of my annual wages in taxes, state and federal. And somehow, despite that, my government is $39 trillion over budget. Every time my taxes go up, the government is even more over budget. Now, how is that possible that my quote-unquote representatives from the state of Minnesota, USA, who go to Washington to represent me, their constituents, can't seem to handle my money wisely or with integrity. And yet I continue to vote for them. I don't, but for the sake of this example, let's say I do. And I continue to pay taxes, even though I don't want to. And I think the best way to shut the entire system down is for all of us to agree to stop paying taxes, cut off their food source. We continue to do the very thing that enslaves us, that keeps us as chattel slavery in our own country. We are indoctrinated and brainwashed into believing that we are not rebels and revolutionaries. We are not like Sam and Frodo. We are not like Neo. We are not like Katniss. We are nothing like them. They are people that we admire. We teach our children to live up to that example of bravery and heroism knowing full well that they will not, and if they try to, we'll shut them down immediately because that's just dangerous. The entire structure of our society is tailored to make sure that we remain slaves in the way that we think and therefore victims in the way that we behave. We see ourselves as victims and we behave like victims because we're slaves, we're chattel slaves. One of the things that I think illustrates this best about compulsory education is that we were taught that in 1865, at the end of the Civil War, black folks were free from slavery. All the slaves were freed in 1865 at the end of the Civil War, once and for all. And sure, we still had Jim Crow laws until, well, the 50s and 60s. And sure, those persisted in rural areas throughout the United States into the 70s, 80s, and even 90s. But what we never, ever address historically is that those slaves were not freed by Lincoln because he was an abolitionist. They were freed by Lincoln because they needed more troops. And it was an easy means of revenue because more workers means more revenue for Northern businessmen and Northern factory owners. And the fact that the South wanted to do their own thing free from the North's influence and that the Civil War was largely fought because Lincoln in the North and the corporatists in the North wanted to be able to tell the South exactly how and what to do with their products. And that really the Civil War was just the North saying to the South, get in line or else. 
That being said, slavery is evil. I don't think anybody would argue that it's not. But our definition of slavery is so narrow that I don't think you understand what I just said. I'm not just saying that black folks were slaves in this country. I'm saying we're all slaves in this country. We're all chattel slaves. The great illusion, the great lie that we're taught in school is that slavery ended in 1865 at the close of the Civil War. And yet then we're taught about segregation and Jim Crow laws. We're taught about the lynchings in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Well, I'm really going all the way back to the beginning of slave trading in this country. But predominantly in the 20th century leading up to the Civil Rights Movement. But Malcolm X is vilified. The Black Panthers are vilified. All kinds of groups are vilified as terroristic, domestic threats, and so on. But not Dr. King. Everybody needs to be more like Dr. King and preach a message of passivity, nonviolent intervention. Why would we be taught that, but not Malcolm X's vision, or even Marcus Garvey's vision for black folks in America? Why aren't we taught that stuff in school? Well, because it's militant, and it demands that people stop acting like slaves and start taking agency over their lives and rising up and pushing back against the very institutions and organizations and forms of governance that enslave all of us. Well, we can't have kids learning that. We can't teach children that our society is fundamentally unjust. We can't teach our children that they're chattel slaves. We can't teach our children to think for themselves, to ask questions to take responsibility for their health and their well-being and their lives. We can't teach that. We can't hold up families because that would usurp the place of the government and the state. Can't tell them to think for themselves. That would usurp the power of compulsory education and the mainstream media. We can't teach them that voting is a sham, that it's a theater of the absurd, that they don't actually have a choice about who rules and governs them, that they don't have representative government. We're not going to teach them that. Instead, we'll teach them just what we need them to know. Get them just smart enough to be able to clock in and clock out at the end of each day. That means then that the best leaders, they act and they don't wait for someone to give them permission. They don't ask for permission to take their mask off. They don't ask for permission to reject vaccinations and COVID passes. It means they don't wait for somebody else to protest and demand change. They don't wait for someone else to speak up at the school board meeting or the city council meeting. They don't wait for somebody else to run for mayor or county sheriff or governor. They do it. And then they set about aggressively executing their plan to overcome any obstacle that stands in their way to becoming a critical thinker and asking good questions, to changing your health and well-being, to taking control of your community, your school, your job, your home. You do that. And then you capitalize on the opportunities. And then you accomplish your mission and you win. But to wait for somebody else to give you permission, to wait around for somebody else to do it for you, that is victim mentality. That is slave mentality. It is nobody else's responsibility, but yours alone, what you do with your health and your well-being. Likewise, why is it someone else's responsibility to improve your school? or your business, or your neighborhood, or your community? Why isn't it your responsibility since you notice it? Because you have been indoctrinated your whole life to not step out, to not raise your hand and say, I'll be tribute. I'll do it. I'll stand in for her or him. I'll do it. I'll lead. 
I'll run for office. I'll throw my hat in the ring, so to speak. I'll have a horse in the race analogy, euphemism, simile, metaphor <laughs> inserted there. Think about how hard that is though. Just talking about it, I can appreciate because even in my own life, there's just times where I don't want to be bothered. There's times when I don't want to speak up because I just don't want to get into it with somebody. Or again, like I said, the anxiety and the anticipation of going into a store nowadays for me, because I live in the People's Republic of Minnesota, which is California light for the most part. It's just, it creates so much anxiety and anticipation for me to go into a store anymore. I don't even like to go shopping. I just don't because I don't want to get into it with people. There's just certain times I'm just not in the mood. And so I'm not being default aggressive. I'm being default passive. And that's my sin. And I need to repent of that and be more bold, have greater integrity and be more aggressive, but not reckless. Don't go into a store and start insulting and cursing people. Don't try and argue them into your side of the, the thought, the, the position, whatever you're, you're standing on politically, ideologically. Don't try and shame people into joining you, point your finger in their face, threaten them. That's not going to work. They're NPCs. They have a dialogue wheel. And they can only say to you what they've been programmed to say. Try it sometime. Go into a store. Give them the manual for your vacuum cleaner and say, here, I got your coupons I promised to drop off today. All right, you have a good night now. And see what they say. And by the way, go in in the middle of the day when it's broad daylight out and say, here you go. Well, you have a good night now. Here's the coupons that I told you I'd drop off. See what they do. See how they respond to that. See if you can break their dialogue wheel. See how many people are NPCs in the game. So Willink continues, rather than passively waiting to be told what to do, default aggressive leaders proactively seek out ways to further the strategic mission. They understand the commander's intent and where they have the authority to do so, they execute. For decisions that are beyond their pay grade or above their authority, default aggressive leaders still make a recommendation up the chain of command to solve problems and execute key tasks to achieve strategic victory. In a small sense, as I read this, I think of, what do I need to do to earn my brown belt in jiu-jitsu? What do I need to do to improve my sparring skills in Muay Thai? What's necessary for me to execute my plan, my mission? When do I have to default to my coaches or those who are superior to me in technique and experience? When do I have to make a recommendation up the chain of command to solve this problem and therefore achieve the victory that I want, the promotion, win the fight, improve as a fighter, whatever it might be. There's times when you have to act decisively for yourself, make up your own mind, think for yourself, act for yourself. But then there's other times you got to pull back and you have to seek out the advice of those who are seasoned, who are more mature, who are more experienced than you are, who have that wisdom they can bring to the table and share it with you to improve you. Because as at least in my life, there are times when I get so locked into what I'm doing that I almost become deaf, dumb, and blind to the people around me who are trying to help me. It's ego predominantly. You just, you get so selfishly self-involved thinking, okay, <clears throat> when I go into the gym tonight, these are the things that I need to tick off the mental boxes in my head. This is my list that I need to check down when I go into the gym tonight. So I got to roll with this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. I need to accomplish this, this, and this. I need to make sure that I talk to my coach about this or that. 
And then when I walk out of there and I've got all the boxes checked off, success. Meanwhile, what I didn't check into was, how are my teammates? How are they doing? How am I helping them improve? Am I loose? Am I relaxed? Am I having fun? Am I seeing vulnerabilities and weaknesses in my technique? Am I turning to my coach and asking smart, intelligent, thoughtful questions? Or am I just asking questions to show my coach that I'm here, that I'm virtue signaling to my coach that, look at me, look at me. All of these things are in the mix. So you can get so bogged down in accomplishing your task, your goal, your mission, that you actually lose sight of the fact that there's other people around you that can actually help you achieve your goals faster, sooner, and more efficiently probably. But if you don't take the moment to detach emotionally and recognize I'm not here for myself, I'm responsible for what I'm doing 100%, but it's not all about me. It's about everybody around me. And did I show up for them or am I just here to satisfy my ego, satisfy my own selfish desires and needs and wants? So aggressive leaders still make a recommendation up the chain of command to solve the problems and execute key tasks to achieve that strategic victory. In SEAL platoons and task units, we expect this from leaders at every level, right down to the frontline trooper in charge of just himself and his small piece of the mission. But this mentality is crucial to any leader in any team or organization. It is just as critical to success in business as on the battlefield. Likewise, then, not only do you look up the chain of command, not only do you seek out the wisdom and the experience of your coaches and those who are better than you, more proficient than you at the technique, but you can also learn from the lower belts too. You can learn from someone who's, this is their first class. They've never grappled in their life. They've never done anything like this. You can learn a lot about from them, like how to be a more efficient teacher and a better training partner to that person. There's so much you can learn from them if you allow yourself. So aggressive, it means proactive. It doesn't mean that leaders can get angry, lose their temper, or be aggressive toward their people. Yeah, I suffer from that in particular. I have to be fully transparent. As a martial arts instructor, but also as a lecturer and conference speaker, as a teacher, I've talked about this before on the previous jujitsu debrief. I have to detach myself from what I'm teaching. Otherwise, what happens, it just happened actually the other night with my wife in jujitsu. I struggle to teach my wife jujitsu and Muay Thai. One, because she's my wife and I'm not closer to anybody else in my life. But also, she is the most anti-intuitive, like she is not physically intuitive. Her body and her mind do not work intuitively in step with each other. In fact, and she would agree with me, so I'm not being condemnatory or negative about this. I often tell her, whatever you think is right, do the opposite. Because when I demonstrate technique to her, especially in jujitsu, she will do the opposite of what I tell her. So if I say, put your elbow on the mat, and I mean the left elbow because it's closest to the mat, she'll literally turn 180 degrees around to touch her right elbow to the mat, even though she has to pull her partner on top of her. And it frustrates me because I'm thinking to myself, I'm teaching jujitsu. There are all these other people here and she's doing it backwards. She's not doing it well. But notice all of my pronouns, all of my words are she, she, her, she, not me, not you need to be 
more detailed in your explanation. You need to be more, be more specific when you tell her to do something, such as take your left elbow and touch your left elbow to the mat. Now turn your right shoulder toward your left elbow and then extend your hips. I could just be more detailed. I could recognize that she is teaching me how to be a better instructor. Or I can get frustrated and angry that my wife of all people can't do the technique correctly on her first, second, or third try in her life of ever doing this particular technique. So really then, who's being a bad leader? Who's being a bad instructor? Who's better at martial arts in that moment? Me or my wife? And the answer is my wife. Because she's there, she's trying. She's learning the technique. She is putting herself in a position where she's uncomfortable, she's unfamiliar, she's awkward, she's embarrassed because she can't do it and her instructor who's her husband is standing right there and he is frustrated and she can hear it and see it. She's accomplishing something. She's moving forward. She's being proactive. I'm going backwards. I'm getting frustrated. I'm getting angry. I'm losing my temper. I'm ineffective as a teacher now. And then all the other students see that. And what do they see? Do they share my frustration? Of course not. Because they're also on the mat struggling to learn. They're also trying to apply the technique for the first time in their lives. They're in it together. And the only person that's frustrated and angry, the only person who's being ineffective is their coach, their instructor. And so being aggressive does mean being proactive, but it also means then don't speak angrily. It's ineffective. Don't lose your temper. It's a sign of weakness. The aggression that wins on the battlefield in business or in life is directed not toward people, but toward solving problems, achieving goals, and accomplishing the mission. My wife is not the problem. And if she does the technique perfectly the first time, that's not my goal. And therefore, she is not contingent to the success of my mission, which is to instruct my students in this martial art and bring them up to a position where they're proficient in this martial art. She's not the problem. I am. I'm being ineffective. I'm being a bad coach. I'm not solving problems. I'm creating them. I'm not achieving my goals. I'm actually erasing them. I'm not accomplishing the mission. I'm actually surrendering the mission to my own ego, to my own selfish desire to be perfect, basically, is what it comes down to to be perfect. And I could sit here and lie to you and say, oh, you know, progress, not perfection, which is true. I do actually believe that. But in those moments when I'm being completely selfish and I'm wrapped up in my own ego and my needs, which are really just my wants, my own petty selfishness, nothing good's coming out of that. Nothing beneficial for me. And worse yet, and more importantly, nothing beneficial is coming out of that for my wife other than that sense of, yeah, I, I don't think I belong here. I don't think I should do this. And then I look at it down the road. Again, here's the woulda, shoulda, couldas. <laughs> here's anxiety and anticipation about the future we were just discussing. My wife gets frustrated and quits training. And then down the road, she is attacked or she's harassed and she can't defend herself because she doesn't know how. Whose fault is that? Who is it that frustrated her and made her feel like she's a failure and that she'll never be any good at Muay Thai or Jiu-Jitsu? Who is it that drove her out of the gym, made her feel small? Who was that? Was it her? No, it was me. So what am I supposed to say? Well, if you would have been in the gym training 
and this happened, you would have known what to do in this situation. Or take a step back and realize, yeah, why did you quit coming to class again? What was, what was the reason? One more, remind me one more time. Why did you quit? Oh, that's right. You were frustrated with me as your coach. So in the end, bad leadership can result in a lot of hurt and harm and pain affecting other people when they're not around you. And that's just something that I don't ever want to live with, which is why I'm constantly trying to learn and improve as a teacher in particular. To learn from every instance, not just from my coaches or from people who are you know, better than me at any particular task, but those who are brand new even, those who are struggling to just grasp the fundamentals, as we talked about in the last podcast about training hard, but training smart. The expectation that everybody's going to be like me, that's absurd. It's, it's so arrogant as to be absurd. And yet we all do it all the time. We expect other people to rise to our standard for ourselves or shrink and lower themselves to our standard for themselves, for ourselves. And either way, does anything positive ever come out of those situations in our relationships at work or in the gym? No, it can't. Because all we care about, all we're concerned about is looking good to ourselves. And that is inherently destructive and harmful to others. So Jocko continues, it is critical. It is critical to balance aggression with careful thought. Well, there you go. And analysis to make sure that risks have been assessed and mitigated. The dichotomy with the default aggressive mindset is that sometimes hesitation allows a leader to further understand a situation so that he or she can react properly to it. Exactly. Sometimes you just got to walk away, detach, take a, take a minute, take a breath, get a drink, think. Is it them or is it me? Did that meeting go wrong because of them and they were unprepared or because I didn't prepare them properly? I wasn't prepared for the meeting. I tried to dominate the conversation to cover for the fact that I was unprepared. And then I threw them under the bus for not being prepared to cover my own ass. Like all you needed to do was just take a minute and be like, ah, I'm, I'm going to go to the bathroom real quick. I'll be right back. And take that moment in the bathroom to recollect yourself, collect your thoughts detach emotionally from the situation and say, what's really happening in this meeting? What, what really is the dynamic here at play? Is it me? What, what am I doing to contribute to the negativity and the overall feeling of unrest in the meeting right now? Is it me or is it something else? So rather than immediately respond to enemy fire, sometimes the prudent decision is to wait and see how it develops. As I tell people, you don't have to be a puncher all the time. You can be a counter puncher. You can let them come in. You can see what their strategy is. You can read their body language and how they express themselves in the moment. Play defense for a little bit. Get a lay of the land. See, see how they're going to come at you. Are they aggressive? Are they overly aggressive? Are they passive? Are they overly passive? Are you just circling each other? Or is this person just, you know, rocketing forward trying to lay into you? Just take a moment and see how this develops. Play defense. Figure out their timing. Figure out their rhythm. See what kind of a fighter they are. And then react. Be a counterpuncher. There's nothing wrong with it. Same thing at work. You don't always have to be the first one with an answer. You don't always have to be the best. You don't always have to be the center of attention and have the spotlight shine on you. But that ego, our, our innate selfishness. I was listening to a new student the other night 
we were after class and he was talking about Muay Thai fighters and stuff like that. And he knows I'm a Muay Thai coach. He knows that I, I've been doing Muay Thai for a while now. And yet he wouldn't talk about me <laughs> and what I'm capable of as a Muay Thai fighter. He's talking about other people who are not as experienced and not as technically proficient as I am and not as good as I am at Muay Thai. And I'm just sitting there like, come on, man, I'm right in front of you. Compliment me. Now I'm thinking all this, of course, I'm not saying it out loud because that would, of course, expose me as a narcissistic egotist, but I'm thinking it and I was just fighting with myself the whole time he's talking to me. So not only am I letting my ego get the best of me, but I'm not even listening to him. And here he is talking to me in earnest, by the way, trying to have a, a, a meaningful, thoughtful conversation with me. And meanwhile, I'm staring at him like I'm paying complete attention to everything that he's saying. And in my brain, behind my eyes, it's just a parade of egotism. What about me? What about me? What about me? What about me? So all the way home, that's, that's all I thought about all the way home was what an ass I was to this, this man who shared his time and attention with me. And I didn't honor it properly because he wasn't inflating my ego to the levels that I thought it deserved to be at. But isn't that the, the test of each of us every day, wrestling with ourselves, trying to subdue that aspect of our personality that's smug and arrogant and thinks too highly of itself and projects this false narrative, this false persona out onto the world? Isn't that every day of our lives? And isn't that what frustrates us about other people who don't engage in the same self-reflection and desire to conquer one's worse demons? Jocko continues, is it a simple reconnaissance by fire? Is it a feint by the enemy meant to distract from the real attack? Is the enemy simply trying to lure you into a confined area where they have a superior force waiting to ambush? How often do we lay ambushes for ourselves versus others? How often are we our own worst enemy? And then we blame others for being our worst enemy because they serve as that mirror that gets held up to us to remind us, you just self-sabotaged yourself. You laid this ambush for yourself and you fell right into it. A careful moment of consideration might reveal the enemy's true intentions. To be overly aggressive without critical thinking is to be reckless. That can lead the team into disaster and put the mission in peril or the greater mission in peril. To disregard prudent counsel when someone with experience urges caution, to dismiss significant threats, or to fail to plan for likely contingencies is foolhardy. It's bad leadership. It's foolhardy. So what's your plan? Well, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that. All right, so what's your backup plan? What's plan B? Well, I don't have a plan B. What do you mean you don't have a plan B? What if, what if things go wrong? What if something happens out there in the field that you couldn't plan for? Then what? You don't have a backup plan? You're out for your morning walk. You didn't bring water. You didn't bring a protein bar. You didn't dress for the weather. You didn't have a backup plan. It was just, well, we'll see how it goes. See? Aggressive, but not reckless. Be a critical thinker. Ask critical questions. Be thoughtful. See how things develop. Take a moment to consider carefully your plan A, your plan B, your plan C. Again, you want to pursue a different occupation. You want a different career that you're passionate about. Awesome. That's fantastic. The sense of well-being and meaning that you gain from that, you can't, you can't put a value on that. However, 
What's your plan B? What if your business fails? What if you go after that career and it doesn't materialize for you? Well, what's your plan B? What's your plan C? Are there other things you're passionate about? Are there other projects that you could pursue now that that one didn't kind of bear fruit? Or did you put all your eggs in that one basket and say to yourself, it's this or nothing, California or bust? Yeah, well, what if you get to California and you don't get that pot of gold? Now what? Where are you going to go? Alaska? Try again in Alaska? Well, a lot of people did back in the 1800s. A careful moment of consideration might reveal the enemy's true intentions. So to be overly aggressive without critical thinking is to be reckless. And this can lead to disaster for all of us. A chief contributing factor to recklessness comes from what military historians have long referred to as, quote, the disease of victory. This disease takes place when a few battlefield successes produce an overconfidence in a team's own tactical prowess while underestimating the capabilities of its enemy or a competitor. This is a problem, not just for combat leaders, but for leaders in teams anywhere, in any arena, throughout the business world and the civilian sector. The disease of victory. It takes place when a few successes produce overconfidence. I was listening to a podcast the other day talk about how the first desert storm gave Americans, as you know, civilians, this sense that, well, the American military force is kick-ass and can just roll into any country it wants and the war will be over in six days. That's how good we are. Well, turns out that's not. And so we rolled into Afghanistan. And you can blame people in the DOD or the State Department. You can blame all the bad actors who wanted us to go in so that they could steal the natural resources that were available there. There's all kinds of reasons that we could look at. But at root, <clears throat> the way it was sold to the American people, look at the first desert storm. Look at how we rolled into Iraq in, in 2001, 2, and 3. Look at it. Easy. Couldn't have been easier. And then 20 years later, all of us are afraid to admit that Afghanistan was another Vietnam. Why? Indoctrination. <laughs> Never, ever criticize the military-industrial complex, who hides, by the way, behind our veterans, behind our soldiers, behind our military. I'm not criticizing our soldiers. I'm criticizing the military-industrial complex and all of those who capitalized on the blood and the sacrifice of my brothers and sisters. But can we take that step back? Can we distinguish between the two? Can we think critically and apply nuance to that thought? Can we distinguish between the end of the enslavement of black people in America, which some would argue is still ongoing? <clears throat> can we distinguish between the end of quote unquote slavery in 1865 and the fact that all it did was institutionalize slavery on a national level that we're chattel slaves? And if you don't believe we're not chattel slaves, go ahead and don't pay your taxes. Tell me how that works out for you. Hunt and fish without a license. Tell me how that works out for you. There are states in the United States where it is legal. It is illegal to collect rainwater. Water falls out of the sky into a barrel, and there are states where it is illegal to collect that water and use it. So again, tell me how free you are, and you're not chattel slaves. 
We're taxed on the money we earn. Then we're taxed on that same money that when we spend it. And then we're taxed at the end of the year on the sum of it. And we're taxed everywhere in between. And what if we say no? What if we choose not to do that? What if we choose not to pay that tax? Well, you tell me how free you are. Overconfidence is a killer. I see guys all the time who are so overconfident because they win a few fights locally, even regionally. They win a few fights, they get a name for themselves locally, and then they think, I'm going to go out east, I'm going to go out west, I'm going to go to a, a bigger promotion and fight. And then their first fight, they get beat, they get knocked out. Some guys, I know, they got knocked out so badly they never fought again. Other guys, they get knocked out twice, three times, four times. But at a certain point, they figure it out. I'm not good enough to compete at this level. So I'm going to go back home and I'm going to compete locally, which is fine. Awesome. Compete locally. Compete regionally. Good for you. But don't allow yourself to get this overinflated sense of overconfidence that you're, because you're a big fish in a little pond, that somehow makes you a world beater. It doesn't, not always. But if you don't test yourself, how will you know? Be confident, just don't be overconfident. And recognize there's always somebody better. Always. And maybe today you're the winner. Maybe you get your hand raised today. But tomorrow is a different day. And the enemy, the opponent, he or she gets a vote too. So be cautious. Have a plan B. Have a plan C. Don't be reckless. But also default aggressive. Get in the arena. Go after it. Get it. Because the worst that can happen is you fail. But as long as you have a contingency plan, you're failing upward. So finally, it is the duty of the leader to fight against this victory disease so that the team, despite its success, never gets complacent. The risk to any action must be carefully weighed against the potential rewards of mission access, success, I'm sorry. And of course, to counter that thought, the cost of inaction must be weighed as well. Success can be as destructive as failure. As he notes, the disease of victory. So on the one hand, you could be afraid to fail, but on the other hand, you could be afraid to succeed because now you have all this extra responsibility and there's more expectations on you to succeed again in great and various ways that are better than or greater than the previous victories. So you can be cursed with failure, but you can also be cursed with success. And I think for me, it's that complacency that comes with success. Oh, I'm just going to downshift and put it on cruise control because I'm successful now. I talked about this in relation to marriage, for example. When two people in a marriage, they get complacent with each other. They stop communicating. They argue all the time. And they're not satisfied with each other. And yet they insist that this is just the way it is. This is marriage. It's not. It's the status quo. It's coasting. It's putting your relationship on cruise control. On the other hand, failure. Well, it's never going to get any better, so I guess I just have to accept this is the way it is. No, you don't. You don't have to accept anything the way it is. If you're breathing, you can move. You can execute on the mission. You can prioritize and execute. You can draw up a different plan. You can come up with a different mission. Okay, you don't want to fight anymore. That's fine. But what can you do to replace that? How can you continue to give back 
at your gym, for example, if you're not going to be a fighter anymore. Be a, tre- be a teacher, be a trainer. Volunteer your time to all those who are coming up who want to be fighters. Share that wisdom with them. Same thing around the office. Oh, you've been here for five years. You know all the hacks. You know all the ins and outs. You know the shorthand. Okay. Don't lord that over the new employees. Use that to improve and better them. Because if the team is better, you're better. If the job improves and the boss is happy, your life gets easier too. So weigh out the potential rewards of the mission, of the goal, versus the potential, you know, punishment, penalties. Can helping this person improve the team? Or is this person smug and arrogant and egotistical and they won't take my counsel or my advice? In fact, they have a very negative response to me whenever I do offer up some advice. I know people like that. I'm like that sometimes too when I get super self-involved. There are some people, when I try and teach them at the gym, I realize she is not ready to be taught by me right now or maybe ever. There's just something about me or the way I teach or my personality or their attitude toward me that is an obstacle to them hearing what I'm saying. And so there's nothing that I can do for this person right now except just leave them alone to do what they're doing and then come back maybe later today or tomorrow or the next class, try again. And maybe they never listen to me. doesn't matter. You're the teacher. You're the coach. Keep teaching. Stay humble. Be confident. Be default aggressive, but don't be reckless. Don't force them. Don't tell them to get out of your class. Don't lord it over them. Don't beat them up when you spar just because you can to make a point. So don't sit there and do nothing, again, and wait for somebody else to do it for you. But likewise, don't be overly aggressive and overly confident and force people to accept what you're doing or saying. As aggressive leaders must be, leaders must be cautious that they are not running to their deaths simply because their instinct is to take action. The dichotomy between aggression and caution must be balanced. So be aggressive, but never reckless. So that's the end of this section. And so I'm going to end with this analogy because it comes up over and over again when I teach jujitsu in particular, which is this. When you don't know what to do, your brain will tell you, do something. Do anything. Just act. Why? Because you are in a situation you're not comfortable with, you're not familiar with. You're grappling with another human being. They're grabbing you. They're a hold of you. They're on top of you. They're beside you. They're behind you. They're twisting you and bending you and putting weight on you that you've never felt before in your life. And it is overwhelming. You're panicked. You're stressed. You're freaking out. You're trying not to freak out. Your emotions are all over the place. Your thoughts are 80 miles an hour in every direction. Your body doesn't seem to want to do anything useful. You're just frozen in time, like a, like a little baby, completely dependent upon the other person. And the other person in this case isn't a loving, nurturing, caring parent. It's a teammate that's trying to choke you unconscious. <laughs> and as an instructor, I have to literally sit down on the mat next to two people and say, hey, just so you know, you don't have to do anything. You can take a moment and collect yourself. In fact, what I usually teach is this. Hey, did you notice that there was a moment there where your partner wasn't doing anything. They were just holding you. So then why were you thrashing all over and pushing on them when they're not doing anything? Take a moment. Assess the situation. Feel where they're at on your body in relation to you. Look around and see what's going on. Take a breath and relax. Then act. 
but ignore that sound, that voice in your head that says, do something, do something, do something. Because the problem when you don't know technique and you do something, it's, you're going to get submitted. I don't, there's no other way around it. Even if the person you're rolling with has a month's more experience than you do, you flailing around like that, it's an arm bar, it's a rear naked choke. It's one of the fundamentals, first day of class techniques we teach. You're going to get caught in it. Why? Because you are so desperate to flee this stressful situation that you actually hurt yourself avoiding getting hurt. By trying to avoid pain, you actually cause more harm to yourself. So in those moments in your relationship, when you're thinking to yourself, I got to do something. I have to do something to save this relationship. I've got to do something to improve this relationship. Or at work, I've got to do something to save this presentation. I got to do something to elevate the team in my manager, my boss's estimation. I got to do something to get that, that, that promotion. Whatever it might be. Take a step back. Take a breath and detach emotionally from the situation. Be an outside observer. Imagine yourself looking through the window and observing what you're doing and saying and what everyone else is doing and saying in that space. And ask yourself, if I were looking through a window right now, just watching myself interact with these people, what would I think? Would I think, what a jerk, what a loud mouth, or what a wallflower, what a doormat. Why does he let people walk all over him? Or there's a guy with confidence that seems to know what he's talking about. He seems really helpful. I like that guy. I wonder what that guy's like in person. Like when you watch yourself from the outside, objectively, what do you see? Someone that you would emulate or someone that you're, you'd be ashamed to sit down and have a beer with? Don't just act because you're supposed to act or your brain is telling you do something. The dichotomy between aggression and caution must be balanced. Be aggressive but never reckless. Reckless is thrashing around trying to escape and giving your back to your opponent. It's trying to get control of a situation that's out of your control. It's hurting other people because you're trying to protect yourself from harm. And in those moments, don't be reckless. Be default aggressive in the way that you engage in self-reflection. Be default aggressive in the way that you take a step back and detach. Be proactive about that. Don't wait around for somebody else to tell you, hey man, walk it off, get a drink of water, take a moment, collect yourself, and then come back. Because nobody likes that. None of us like being told that stuff. That's so embarrassing. When you realize that you lost control or you said or did something that's completely outside the boundaries of what's acceptable in that moment, nobody likes that. Nobody likes having to apologize for their behavior or what they said in the, in the heat of that moment. Just take a breath and detach. Be default aggressive in the way that you think about yourself and the way that you're critical of yourself. Be default aggressive about, you know, controlling your emotions, putting them on a leash so that you can make an objectively wise decision free from the emotional baggage of the moment. Recognize that it's okay to suck when you're starting something for the first time or when you're brand new. But also be aggressive in learning, be aggressive in studying, be aggressive in pursuing your goals and accomplishing your mission and achieving success, whatever that means for you, in your relationships, in your work, at the gym. But I think if you don't keep it playful, 
if you don't remember outside of the battlefield where people are actually trying to kill you, it's all a gift. This is all a gift. The people that we're with, the fact that we have the ability to pay our bills, live where we live at, all of these things, it's still a gift no matter how great or how bad we might have it in that moment. If you're a breathing, you have the opportunity to escape from that situation you're in or improve the situation you're in either way. You can fail upwards or you can die from inactivity. You can suffer from the disease of victory or you can become so passive that you become sick with defeat. It's all about being default aggressive, going after what you want, having a plan, executing on that plan, being able to communicate that plan to other people and allow them through your communication skills to understand this is my vision, this is my goal, this is my mission. Will you help me? Will you be a part of this? How can I give you ownership of the mission as well so that you're not just following my lead, but you're participating in it with me. We're walking together through this so that we both enjoy success and we both can grow and learn from this and we can both benefit each other in this situation all the way up and down the chain of command from the first day person to the person who's been there for 30 years. How can we all help each other improve and grow? How can we all help each other succeed and accomplish our individual missions and most importantly, the team's mission? So that's all I got for today. Thank you again for all that you do to help me with the podcast, for supporting me in the podcast, for all that you do to support the gym, and for following along as we read through The Dichotomy of Leadership. It's a great book. I, like I said in the last episode when I introduced this, get extreme ownership, read it, memorize it, then move on to Dichotomy of Leadership. It's a perfect complement to extreme ownership. It's imminently readable can be practically applicable in almost any situation, in my experience anyways. And I hope that you truly benefit from my reading this. So that being said then, uh, go back and listen to The Last High Ground where I read about a colonial pastor who had a few things to say about tyranny and rebellion and faith. Otherwise, I will talk to you again on Sunday for Sumerian Sunday. And if you benefit from the Sumerian Sunday stuff, the sermons, let me know as well and I'll keep posting them. Otherwise, look me up on Instagram and Facebook, specifically Instagram. Go to Anchor FM, Warrior Priest Podcast. Otherwise, Warrior Priest Podcast at wordpress.com and, and you know subscribe to the email list. Otherwise, all that being said, thanks for putting up with my caffeinated ramblings today, and I'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.